Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 93rd episode of the Nauticast titled, The Stark in Winterfell, an analysis of a Clash of Kings brand three in which friends and family come together to celebrate community and chow down, but I can't call it Christmas because Obama, he did it again. Thanks, Obama. Oh, God. Thankfully, I don't have to deal with Jeff on my own for this chapter. I'm very happy to welcome back to the Nauticast, Chloe from Girls Gone Canon. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Even you, Jeff, with your war on Christmas. I'm excited to have you back, Chloe. I I don't know where this make-believe, fake, drama bullshit stuff is coming from, because I've always been so open-minded and so much of a friend to you forever. This is the Eric Andre meme where Jeff shoots Chloe in the chest and goes, I don't know where this drama is coming from, Chloe. Interesting. Who, who stirs up drama in I'm the gonna fandom? I'm going to have to write this Certainly one down. This is an interesting conundrum. Jeff has put me in well. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. I'm excited to be back. This is a, I know beforehand we were just talking in the pre-episode about, uh, about how Jeff's like, wow, I didn't know this episode would be so depthful. Well, here we are. It's a long, it's, it's going to be a longer episode, so strap in, grab yourself a, uh, a a nice caffeinated drink, I guess, so to speak, or go on a long drive. You know, this this episode is going to be one of our longer ones, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And thank you, Chloe, so much for having, for coming on. It's, we're, I'm really, really, really looking forward to this episode, so I'm sure Emmett is as well. We had you on for, for Ned and for Sansa, so spinning the Stark roulette wheel, we landed on Bran. One of them will work. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council on Patreon, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Word of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Word of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the Higher Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Word of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Hook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer of Dragons. Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. of the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, and our two newest members of the Small Council. Again, two new members of the Small Council. Lord Pension for Nostalgia and Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Deaths and Gentle Thems. Thank you, Small Councilors, very much. And thank you and welcome to our new ones. Thank you, Councilors, as always, and special welcome to Lord and Rainbow Commander, respectively. So, as always, our spoiler to say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That's the five novels, three duck character novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsomer sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, who asks, With the coming introduction of the reeds, could you talk about sacrifice and cannibalism and how it informs the narrative as a whole? Is it the same kind of sacrifice as Stannis will make? Is it a no-chance-no-choice moment or something different altogether? And that's a great set of questions, and yeah, especially relevant to the reeds, especially if you believe in the Jojen Pace theory in terms of the fate of one of the reeds being introduced in this chapter. So what do you think about that, Jeff? What do you think? How do you think sacrifice and cannibalism inform the narrative as a whole? Are they the same kind of motif in the narrative? Are they different? And where do you think they're going? 
I want to say it's a third category. I mean, uh, that might be controversial. I don't know. But I, I want to say that Stannis wants to sacrifice – Stannis will sacrifice Shireen in order to stop the apocalypse. There is a sense that that's the case for Jojen Pace, but I think it's more of like kind of eating the power, so to speak. Like eat the magic beans and grow yourself into like an, – and open your third eye for real and become the, the last green seer. I think that's more of what George is going for with what's what's happening with Jojen Pace. But – I I don't know I some sometimes I wonder about like the the element of cannibalism in there because like there's a small part of it that's like well I guess like Jojen is up there so does that give like consent for him to be eaten by Bran Lord to become the last green seer and then you're like I, I I'm a little bit um just just slightly perturbed by the ethical question about it all I'm I'm much more ethically perturbed by what's going to happen with Stannis and Shireen. I don't think it's a no chance, no choice moment because I obviously that's Brienne sacrificing herself on on behalf of the innocents and on behalf of the the orphans in the Riverlands. So I, I think it's separate from that. I think it's more related to Stannis and Shireen, but it's also just a little bit different. And that little bit of difference makes it almost a third category for me. What do you guys think? I think something that kind of aligns those sacrifices is that in both instances, it's not their sacrifice to make, right? Shireen and Jojen are not sacrifices that Stannis and Bran get to make to attain a higher power with no accountability. Mm. Uh, for Bran, it's something that he's obviously uninformed. If this is Jojen paste, hypothetically speaking, if it is my son being eaten, it is. But <laughs> if it is, um, it, it's not something Bran realizes, right? It's all kind of a blur. He's just like North, there's some whites... There's a, a guy with some tree growing out of him. I don't know. It's all kind of new. It's all kind of foreign. Also, he's 10. I'm not saying that excuses everything. Obviously, you have some sort of compass in you, but he just doesn't know. He doesn't know. Um, it's something that's being concealed from him, and it's something that, yes, we know maybe Bloodraven has an alternate agenda, and what Bran does when he's finally confronted with this said agenda is going to make all the difference. For Stannis, he's sacrificing Shireen, hypothetically speaking, in the future. He's sacrificing <laughs> Shireen because it's a hypothetical, and that's if it happens because it's going to. However, he burns the kid. It, it's not for the realm. It's for Stannis to be better than his brother or to prove to his dead family members that he did it. He's not burning Shireen to be Azor High and fulfill his destiny to save the realm. He's doing it because he wants his throne that was denied from him and that his brother never looked at him and said, hey, Stannis, you did a good job for me and I'm proud of you. Thank you. It's the idea of being a hero versus the reality of being a hero, which is more what the no chance, no choice moment is for, for Brienne. Yeah, for, for Jojen and Brienne, there's this different aspect where Jojen knows it's happening and knows it's coming, as we see from this chapter forward. He knows specifically how and when he's going to die. And Bran not only doesn't realize he's eating Jojen, if indeed he is at the end of Dance with Dragons, he also doesn't consciously know that he's eating the deserters from the Night's Watch at the beginning from a Dance with Dragons that Cold Hand serves up. But at some level, he does. And I think that's kind of what that's more about in, in that situation is, as with Hodor's brand being pushed to awareness of what he's doing. It's like the, the thing in Ender's Game where he commits the genocide without knowing it, but still feels, still feels guilt at some level. Because he's tortured by his agency and involve, involvement in it by the by the cruel adults who manipulated him, and the same thing with Bran. With Stannis, it's from the perspective of the adult, so it is it is inherently different. I think it wrestles with some of the same issues, but I do think it's interesting that Stannis himself uh, burns people alive for the crime of cannibalism. 
suggesting that one of the things that's going on with the sacrifice of Shireen is the man who stood so hard against atrocities giving in to atrocities. And I think what they ultimately really have in common, and why they're both emphasized so much in A Dance with Dragons, is these are things you do on the brink of apocalypse when uh, the rules start to fade. And when, you know, you, you start considering things you never would before. And of course, that's as Chloe said, it's not an excuse because not everyone breaks under those circumstances. And everyone who does break, breaks in different ways according to who they are. Like Stannis has that whole backstory he brings to the table. But it does bring things out of people that they would never consider under other circumstances. And George is very interested in Taboo, of course, and maybe most of all in A Dance with Dragons, which that whole, the whole prologue of A Dance with Dragons is about abomination, about crossing those lines. So uh, thank you, Wolfman Zach, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Nauticast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, early access, and 22 bonus Song of Ice and Fire episodes and four Fever Dream chapter-by-chapter episodes. Absolutely. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next episode titled The Stone is Strong, a tour of Winterfell featuring our very special guest, Sir Joe Buckley, is out now for all patrons if you guys are listening to this on the release date. And as we said last week, as it's the holiday season, this episode will also be out for all of our listeners on December 30th on our main feed. But... Enough about Patreon. Let's turn our attention to Brandon of House Stark. When we last left him, Bran was having a nightmare of Jamie Lannister after he had a well, after he had welcomed most of the North to Winterfell for the Harvest Feast. Let's see what happens in said Harvest Feast in this synopsis of the Clash of Kings, Bran Three. It's feasting time in Winterfell, and Bran should be cheerful, happy, and getting with the Christmas spirit. Instead, he's broken, sad, and probably wants to ban Christmas just like Obama. Mounted and decked out in his finest Stark garb, with the Stark sigil sewn onto his surcoat. Bran rides into the Great Hall atop his horse, Dancer, but he really wishes that he had his actual direwolf summer accompanying him rather than simply having the direwolf sigil on him. Men shout Stark and Winterfell from the tables, and it should be a moment of triumph for Bran, but he's aware of the reality of it all. He was old enough to know that it was not truly him they shouted for. It was the harvest they cheered. It was Rob and his victories. It was his lord father and his grandfather and all the Starks going back 8,000 years. But it's not a total wash. Bran does feel familial patriotic pride in the acclamation. And for a moment, he forgets his disability until he reaches the dais and Osha and Hodor undo the straps and place him on the seat of their fa- of his father's. Roderick was to Bran's left with Bran next to him. And Bran- Rickon was on the right going for the Samson never cut my hair look. He had refused to let it be cut since Catelyn had left Winterfell. Rickon complains that he should have been given a horse to ride too. But Bran tells him to shut it and Roderick concurs in a loud bellowing voice. Bran welcomed them in the name of his brother, the King of the North, and asked them to thank the gods old anew for Rob's victories and the bounty of the harvest. May there be a hundred more, he finished raising his father's silver goblet. A hundred more! Everyone toasts, clanking cups, and drinking horns together. Bran has wine too, noting that it's been sweetened, but shit's pretty strong. Sir Roderick states that Bran did well and that Ned would be proud, and even Bummer Lewin agrees. And then there is the food. Ah, yes, the food. Time for George to go on page after page on food. No, I'm not even joking. It's four pages on my Kindle. I'll spare you all the warm, homey, tasty goodness to save some time as well as my hunger because when I was reading the synopsis, I was a little hungry, so I decided to kind of skip it over and just move on. The point is, it's something that Emma is going to talk about in significant depth in the depth section. But for now, everyone is eating, everyone is bringing food, and this is important. Wyman Man released musicians. Man's got a fondness for music, loves that rat cook beat, tries to play strong, but the sound gets drowned out by all the frivolity. Only Hodor seems to be enjoying the music. Bran looks around at the table, sees Lewin and Roderick talking happily, and Rickon chatting up the phrase, who, by the way, Bran didn't want to be at the high table until Bummer Lewin told Bran that Rob was going to be married to a fray aunt of the Walters and Arya to one of their uncles. Serving men bring a lord's portion of each dish to Bran, but after a while he's full and begins sending food away. 
If the dish smelled especially choice, he would send it to one of the lords on the dais, a gesture of friendship and favor that Maester Lewin told him he must make. So he sends salmon to Janela Hornwood, goose to Clay Servin, lobster to his master of horse, Joseph, Joseph, who had trained his horse dancer for this evening's festivities. He sent sweets to Hodor and Old Nan as well, for no reason, but he loved them. Well, I forgot about them. This is a Song of Ice and Fire. Sir Roderick reminded him to send something to his foster brother, so he sent Little Water some boiled beets and Big Water the buttered turnips. And now we're back to Song of Ice and Fire. Power move, Bran. Bran notices that below the high table, the class distinctions seem to kind of disappear, or at least fade a little bit, as everyone from lords, knights, nobles, Winterfell-serving men and women, and small folks sit together on the benches. Again, another moment that Bran should be happy about, but some faces Bran had never seen before. Others he knew as well as his own. Yet they all seem equally foreign to him. He watched them as from a distance, as if he still sat in the window of his bedchamber, looking down the yard below, seeing everything, yet a part of nothing. Always with the sentence, George, can't you allow poor Bran to have a nice meal without all these emotions intruding in? Damn. Osha observes the tables, and Bran sees one of the tall heart bros, attempts some casual sexual assault on her. Osha pours wine on his head, and then Mick in the, ar- then Mick in the armor was all up in some woman's grill. <laughs> then... <laughs> Then making the armor was all up in some woman's grill, you know, you know, going for a handful, if you know what I mean. And Bran notes that the woman doesn't seem to mind this time. But it's more than just the Northmen being lewd. Bran observes Farland playing with his dogs, old man, old Nan picking at the old Nan picking at the crust of a hot pie with her fingers, Moore's Umber playing a drinking game, Lord Wyman eating lampreys, quote, as if they were an enemy host. And speaking of Wyman, Bran's been growing a little bit fond of our Lord of White Harbor, liking that he laughs a lot. But there were also sad sights too. Lady Horn was was next to Wyman and she was barely eating. It is too hot here, Bran thought and too noisy, and they're all getting drunk. Bran wants to get out of the Great Hall and head off to the Godswood, and then his mind starts drifting. He's experiencing the Godwoods. He's experiencing the Godswood in real time. How cool it is, how steam is rising from the hot pool, the rustling of red wherewood leaves. There is brother, and he will howl at the rising moon soon. Roderick interrupts Bran's attempt to work. Wait, work? Yeah, read the subtext, Doofus. He's working here. The waking dream had been so vivid for a moment Bran had not known where he was. Bran says he'll have food later, but he's full now. Roderick, a little wine drunk, says that Bran's doing, been doing great lately. He'll make a great lord. But Bran doesn't want to be a lord. He's still after that knighthood. He grabs his wine cup and one, the one his dad used to drink from and thinks about the last time he saw Ned drink from it. It was when Robert came to Winterfell with all his entourage. His family was there. The king, his men, ladies, mom, dad, brother, sister, his bastard half-brother John. So many people. And now they're all gone. It was as if some cruel god had reached down with a great hand and swept them all away. The girls to captivity. John to the wall, Rob and mother to war, King Robert and father to their graves, and perhaps Uncle Benjamin as well. And then down among the ranks of the people who served Winterfell, it was all new faces to replace the ones who had died in King's Landing or gone south with Rob to the war. And sure, he might like his new bros like Hayhead, Ben, Poxy Tim, great name, and Skitterick. He still missed his old friends. Rand looked up and down the benches at all the faces happy and sad and wondered who would be missing next year and the year after. He might have cried then. But he couldn't. He was the Stark in Winterfell, his father's son and his brother's heir, and almost a man groom. But then the doors open and the cold makes the flames go hot and bright for a moment. And Chloe, I guess you deserve this. Can you read to us who just entered the room? Of course I can, Jeff. Alebelly led two new guests into the feast. The Lady Mira of House Reed, the rotund guardsman bellowed over the clamor, with her brother, Jojen of Greywater Watch. Thank you so much, Chloe. That was my Christmas gift to you. Hope you enjoyed that. Introducing the Reads on the Nauticast podcast. So, 
Everyone looks up from their plates and cups at the new entrance. Little Walter mutters, frog eaters, to little Big Walter because he's fucking garbage. And Roderick welcomes the Kranikmen to his feast. Rickon wonders who they are, and Little Walter, continuing this line of dropping slurs on the newcomer, says that they're mudmen, thieves and cravens, and they have green teeth from eating frogs. Lumen advises Bran to very warmly greet these two, though, even if they were unexpected. Does Bran know who they are? He does. They're Howland Reed's son and daughter, and Howland Reed was a great friend to his father, Ned. The two Krennicmen walk the hall, and Bran noses one is a girl, in soft lambskin breeches and a sleeveless jerkin with bronze scales. She seems as old as Rob, but she was super skinny. A woven net hung from one slim hip, long bronze knife from the other. Under her arm, she carried an old iron great helm spotted with rust. A frog spear and round leathern shield were strapped to her back. Meanwhile, Jojen gets, gets described this way. Her brother was several years younger and born of weapons. All his garb was green, even to the leather of his boots. And when he came closer, Bran saw that his eyes were the color of moss, though his teeth looked as white as anyone else's. Both Reed kids then address Bran and Rickon as, my quote, Lords of Stark. They're here to swear their fealty to the King of the North on behalf of their father, Howland. To Winterfell, we pledge the faith of Greywater, they said together. Hearth and heart and harvest we yield up to you, my lord. Our swords and spears and arrows are yours to command. Grant mercy to our weak. Help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you. I swear it by earth and water, said the boy in green. I swear it by bronze and iron, his sister said. We swear it by ice and fire, they finished together. Bran's really not sure about this oath. He'd really never heard it before. Seems important, though, so he basically tells the breed siblings that he hopes their harvests are bountiful the winter short. Basically, it's what you might find on a House Stark holiday greeting card. Bran introduces himself as Bran, and the reeds say they brought fish, frog, and fowl as gifts for the feast. Bran thanks the reeds, though he wonders if they'll, he'll have to eat the frog. Still, he offers the reeds meat and bead from Winterfell. He tries to remember everything about the Kranikmen that he was taught. They were a poor folk, fishers and frog hunters who lived in the houses of thatch and woven reeds on floating islands hidden in the deeps of the swamp. It was said that they were a cowardly people who fought with poison weapons, and preferred to hide from foes rather than face them in open battle. And yet... Howland Reed had been one of his father's staunchest companions during the war for King Robert's crown, before Bran was born. Jojen looks around and asks where the direwolves are, and Rickon says that the direwolves have been chained on account of Shaggy Dog's bad behavior, but Mira says that Jojen wants to see them. Little Walter says that the direwolves will bite Jojen, but Bran says, nah, especially if he's there. Bran had never seen a Craig man before, as none of them had ever come to Winterfell. Curious, that. But then the hall gets noisy again, and Bran can't hear anything. Bran asks Roderick if the Krankmen eat frogs, and Roderick admits that, yeah, they do. They also eat fish, lizard lions, and all kinds of birds. Bran thinks that maybe that's because they don't have sheep or cattle, and then he sends them some mutton chops and aurochs and beef and barley stew, thinking that they might appreciate a taste of the wild side. Bran watches, noting that they seem to like the food, but then Mira catches Bran staring at her to his embarrassment and smiles. Been there, bro. I feel you so, so strongly in that moment. Later, after all the food is consumed, Bran watches the musicians turn the amps up to 11 as they play The Night That Ended. Then Hother Umber comes out with a giant horn and blows it loudly during the part of the song where the Night's Watch rides out to beat the others in battle. All the dogs start barking at that. Then the Glover spit a skirl on Bladder and Woodharp. Moore's Umber gets crazy on the dance floor tonight, grabbing a serving girl and spinning around to their delight. Hother jumps in to dance, and Wyman manually asks Beth Cassell to dance until he grows tired. Then Clay Sermon dances with Beth Cassell instead. Roger asks Lady Hornwood for a dance, but she declines excusing herself. Poor Lady Hornwood. Poor Roger Cassell heading down to Broken Heartsville. Bran watches for a while, but then hot, tired, and a little wine drunk, he asks for Hoder to come. But it wasn't just the atmosphere of this place. All the dancing was making him sad. It was something he could never do. I want to go. Hodor says Hodor, and Lewin and Hayhead lift Bran into the basket attached to Hodor's back. Bran feels everyone staring at him in his basket as he's let out from the rear of the hall. Bran has stuck his head as they cross the door because, of course, and then they run into Joseph 
the new master force just as they're about just as he's about to go to bone town with a woman but then hodor stops to stare the girl screams and bran says so let them be he just wants to go to bed in the bedroom bran uses the iron bars to get himself into bed good job on that upper body strength bran proud of you bran tells hodor that he can go back to the feast but don't bother joseph and the woman all right then bran blows out the candle and bran can still hear the music faintly but then he starts thinking about big daddy ned and how he asked his father if the king's guard were the best of the were the best knights of the seven kingdom no longer but ned answered but once they were a marvel, a shining lesson to the world. Was there one that was best of all? The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from a heart of a falling star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me, but for Howland Reed. Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant. Bran goes to sleep, thinking of knights fighting with starfire swords, but then the dreams come. Bran is in the godswood, the smells of the kitchen in the great hall very strong out here in the wild. He stalks beneath the trees and the night is alive with the sounds of men in the hall. He feels restless, wanting to hunt, run, but then a sound, rattling iron. Summer and Shaggy Dog race for the direction of the sound and then they catch the smell of men, leather, earth, and iron. A man and a woman. The man has no fear, even when Summer bared his teeth and Shaggy growled. Here they come, the female said. Mira, some part of him whispered, some wisp of the sleeping boy lost in the wolf dream. Did you know they would be so big? They will be bigger still before they are grown, the young male said, watching them with eyes large, green, and unafraid. The black one is full of fear and rage, but the gray is strong, stronger than he knows. Can you feel him, sister? I like that. You sing your Joshua York voice for for Joe. They're the same character. George loves his pretentious, like, pale weirdos. True that, true that. I can't imagine why I relate. Carry on. (laughs) Anyways, Jojen inches closer to the wolves. He reaches out for Summer's muzzle, and Bran feels the touch light as wind. Yet the brush of those fingers, the wood dissolved, and the very ground turned to smoke beneath his feet and swirled away laughing. And then he was spinning and falling, falling, falling. And that is The Clash of Kings Brand 3. Well, we've been through, I feel like, a rasher of bummer chapters leading up to this one. And I dare say that this chapter, it's not completely fucking sad. Like, is, is that a fair, like, assessment of this chapter so far? This might be the happiest chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of darkness around the edges of Brand 3. But this is one of very few times reading the series in which we see a world I'd be happy to live in. It's a chapter built out of laughter and love and lots and lots of food and wine, all the best things in life. It's a chapter written in such a way as to make you feel warm inside. It's about knowing who you are as an individual and a community and reveling in it together. Of course, what makes it so powerful on reread is knowing how fragile this golden sense of harmony really is, how soon the bubble will pop. And as usual, I fall back on Stephen Atwell, what he said about this chapter. For everyone at this feast, which means virtually the entire political community of the North, This is the last good time any of them will remember. Next comes Jojen Reed's dark premonitions. Then Lady Hornwood will be abducted, returning home from this very feast, and the North will fall into open civil war. Then the Ironborn will come, the destruction of this place and this family and this community, the rise of the Boltons, the winter snows, and everything to come. But first, there will be one last moment where the North is free, victorious, prosperous, and safe. Brand 3 is all about standing on the threshold, right from the start, when Bran urges his horse dancer across a literal threshold. The chapter is caught between revel and ruin, childhood and adulthood, summer and winter, and above all, politics and magic, the intertwining duality that we've been talking about all the way through A Clash of Kings so far. 
This chapter is, is, is near and dear to my heart, and I know the same is, is true for our guest. So, Chloe, what did you think of Brand 3 this time through? This chapter is, especially when you consider the stark point of views in this story, uh, this chapter reeks of legacy and the memories of loved ones and how do you carry on and what do you do when all order has been disrupted. And I think it's a really prominent chapter when you think about Brand's hero journey, his hero arc, and where the reads are fitting into it with their introduction. I mean, you look back to Bran 4 in A Game of Thrones, you have the great quote from the story from Old Nan that one by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. Act 1 of this whole hero journey for Bran is the journey in leaving Winterfell, right? It's the call to adventure. Like Emmett said, he's standing at the threshold with guardians appearing and mentors and sages appearing, and he's about to cross the threshold. Act two is the transformation, him in the cave, the challenges, the temptations, approaching the unknown, the revelation of death and rebirth, and when he really plugs into the tree. I would say that act two really gets to its uh its prime when you get to a dance of dragons, right? When he sees everything from the Winterfell godswood. Act three and four is unification and the road home and return. It's the ordeal, you know, going through it all, the rewards, seizing the sword, or maybe even the crown, as the hit TV show from HBO, Game of Thrones, <laughs> as we all have watched. Uh, and the road back, atonement. The end of this is, of course, mastering two worlds, mastering life, earning back that freedom to live. So we're dead in the middle of Bran's first act as a hero, and the Harvest Feast is this display of that. He's upended as a boy lord into a political situation that looks pretty simple, pretty easy on the surface, but it's really not. He tenderly sends sweets and meals to his friends and house guests, but the real northern problems begin to show themselves in these brand chapters. Wyman Manderley is flexing his power and money and food at court. Donella Hornwood's secession and hand in marriage is really put into the spotlight, or not so much. And all the lords are really just vying for attention. Make no mistake, it's that pocketbook king's landing at this point in the story, and the lords are looking for what comes with kingship now that Rob has taken it. Glory. Bran demonstrates an understanding of politics as much as a nine-year-old likely could understand, specifically under this pressure of holding a king's court, Rob's court. Was he supposed to swear something back to them? Their oath was not one he had been taught. Uh, Bran's been studying. He's trying to appear very astute in front of these northern lords, but he's not ready to be a lord or a king in this chapter. He still longs for knighthood and adventure and boyhood. And the introduction to Jojen and Mira is this introduction of magic in the physical plane for Bran, right? It's what's been in his dreams come to life. The introduction of some of his physical guardians before he heads to his transformation among the caves. They're here to take him on that adventure that he craves. But as we know, he's never known winter and a knightly adventure is not what actually awaits him. He later is forced to flee Winterfell, it's in a smoking ruin, and Jon's plot picks back up, especially in A Dance with Dragons, on some of these northern politics. The situation in the north without a Stark in Winterfell has been heavily neglected, and in those chilly chapters of the Wall, we get to see how the north has coped, or not coped, since then, under feet and feet of snow. I think it's brilliantly said. I think like you guys in Girls Got Canada are in the middle of John's chapters in A Dance with Dragons, and you're just about to meet some of those clansmen coming out of the mountains to come visit John at the wall. 
for reasons that are not it's not entirely known, but it's, uh, are likely to become much more important come the winds of winter. But but for me, I, I'm going to go a little bit lower than that and talk a little bit about retcon because it's retcon time, baby. In the Clash of Kings brand three, it's a very obscure retcon. And it's so obscure that like I only found it when I was doing research for something completely different on this. So back in the late 90s, an eagle-eyed early fan of A Song of Ice and Fire caught something off when Robert showed up at Winterfell, and I'll quote it in full. So a fan asked George why Bran did not appear at the Feast of Winterfell early in Game of Thrones, which is Jon's first chapter in Game of Thrones. And George replies, as to your question about Bran, well, he is president of the banquet, of course. John doesn't mention him, that's true. But of course, there are hundreds of others who are present as well that John also fails to mention. And Bran is an everyday familiar sight to John, who is likely more curious about the guests, the king and the queen, their children, the lion and the imp. That's one explanation anyways. The other one is that the author just slipped up and neglected to mention him. But either way, he was there, definitely. There's even a moment in A Clash of Kings when he thinks back on the feast. Well, here's our moment in A Clash of Kings where Bran is thinking back to what John was recounting in real time back in his first chapter. And we do see that if you look back in John's first chapter, the fan is right. Bran is not mentioned at all. But here's where George retcons Bran not being mentioned by having Bran remember Robert's feast. And instead of doing the hand-waving Bran remembers the feast thing, George layers the retcon with a haunting sadness, having having him contextualize the feast as the last time everyone he loved was in one place. But now... It was as if some cruel god had reached down with a great hand and swept them all away. The girls to captivity, John to the wall, Rob and mother to war, King Robert and father to their graves, and perhaps Uncle Benjamin as well. And, you know, Emmett, I was thinking about something when and when you were talking about the first your first thoughts about this chapter. Like, Brand, this Harvest Feast is like the last happy moment for the Starks in the story. It's kind of that last happy moment for Ned and for Catelyn back in A Game of Thrones. Like, these are jumping off points for the falling out for everything kind of dissolving around the around Winterfell and around House Stark, both in a Game of Thrones and also in a Clash of Kings. So this is the further unraveling of it. But before we get to all of that sadness that we're definitely going to talk about, Emmett, explain to me why this feast isn't simply food porn like I implied in my synopsis. I think one way to think about Brand 3 is that it springs whole from this line from Sir Roderick in Brand 2. The feast makes a pleasant pretext but a man does not cross a hundred leagues for a sliver of duck and a sip of wine. Only those who have matters of import to set before us are like to make the journey. And in light of this chapter, that feels like a direct message to the audience, telling us to consider the cultural context of this meal rather than just skimming the descriptions and moving on. In Brand 2, we saw how things work under the Stark umbrella. We saw challenges to Winterfell's authority from every angle. And while, as we said with Stephen Atwell on that chapter, some of Roderick and Lewin's responses are worrying and set the stage for later problems, the overall feeling in Brand 3 is that the tests were passed. The center has held, and it's time to party. The very fact of this bounty, the presence of all these faces here, testifies to the success of the Stark Project. Nowhere else in the North could this happen. No one is fighting. No one is left hungry or cold. At every level, the Harvest Feast is structured to reflect the politics at play. You have Dancer's gray and white barding. You have Bran's direwolf pin, where else but over his heart. Bran sitting in his father's chair, drinking from his father's cup. You have the Walder's presence on the dais, despite Bran hating their little guts. You have the gestures Bran must make by sending food to others. And even the food itself sends a message. If you look at the description, you have these sentences about all these hearty northern stews and turnips and onions, all the things you'd expect. And then this hard right turn when Wyman brings all the seafood Chloe could ever want just to flaunt his wealth and his cultural status some more, that I have this stuff and no one else in the North does. This makes me distinct and I can throw it all away. It's not just because he personally wants a plate of eels, although he does. (laughs) It's sadly common these days to think of the, quote, political as being a a narrative imposed from without. Like, stop making it political is a mantra of our times. But all 
the political means is how our power structures shape our lives. And everything about food, from how it's grown to how it's made to who eats what, where, when, why, and how, reflects how power structures shape our lives. Like, this feast is the organizing principle of Stark power. It's their way of saying, here's why it's good we're in charge. The Lannisters have their gold and the Starks have their stews. Like, my favorite example of this comes from Moore's Umber, Crow Food Umber, in the Theon chapter released from the Winds of Winter. When they're right outside Winterfell, Theon and Jane have just jumped... Crowfoot has them in hand right before the phrase come out, and he's testing Jane to see if she is indeed Arya Stark. And one of the ways he does that is he says to her, When last I was inside those walls, referring to this chapter, your cook served us a steak and kidney pie, made with ale, I think, best I ever tasted. And that's not incidental. That matters. That's a statement about who Winterfell is and who House Stark is. There's that they are the place where you go when you want to get the best steak and kidney pie you've ever eaten. <laughs> and that is not an accidental political statement. That is a deliberate political statement. And our POV brand is, as Chloe says, is just hovering on the cusp of awareness of this adult reality. The food is, it, it's silly sometimes because you're like, wow, it's 10 pages of neeps and they're piled with butter and garlic. But <laughs> look at Alice Karstark's wedding right now in A Dance with Dragons. You know, as you speed toward the end of the books, they had onion broth with bits of goat and carrot. That was their main course, you know? Uh, that and elk. That's it. It's a much different situation than the feast at Winterfell. This was good times because of the food that was there. This is when you could say, ah, it was plentiful. Ah, yeah, plentiful. And now it's, yeah, it's all gone. Everything has changed in in such a dire way. And, you know, I I love what you both are saying. I I think that's an absolutely excellent point about Alice Karstark's wedding at Castle Black is very different, very sparse, very much like this is like the most the happiest day of Alice Karstark's life, or it should be when when you're getting married, so to speak. And people often cite that as the happiest day of their life. It was for me, and you know, it's it's a uh, it, it's kind of sad that that's that's what she gets for a wedding feast, and that's showing the scarcity of the time. And you know, this chapter though is talking about like what the Starks do in terms of their civil politics, and we talk a lot about civil politics in the Hotcast podcast. We talk about it as shadows on a wall and the trappings of power, all the different ways that. People are, are reflecting on politics and on, on civil politics in in the realm. And in two weeks, I'm going to have a lot to say about Renly's crown in particular and what that communicates. You know, it's a line of roses with a stag in the, in the, in the middle of the crown. Yeah. And this feast, I think, works as almost a contrast, but not exactly to that mentality. You know, Emmett's point about the Starks having stews and the Lasters having the gold is gold. It's a great point. Money gives the Lasters prestige and power. And the Lasters use that prestige and power to lord it over their lessers. It separates them out from the common man. Think about what Tommy Lancer said. He was talking about, about Sandra Clegane in this case being given the white cloak. But I think this applies to how his mentality is to all the small folk in the realm. You feed your dog bones under the table. You do not seat him beside you on the high bench. Meanwhile, in this chapter, the Starks have this perspective. On the benches below, Winterfell men mix with small folk from the winter town, friends from the near, near holdfast, the escorts of their lordly guests. Now, it is important to note that the lower classes are below the salt, so to speak, even in a Stark feast. And this is a point we brought back back in a Clash Kings brand too. Yeah, the Starks are awesome and everything like that, but they are not immune from the trappings of aristocratic power here in Westeros and of the social strata that dominates all of what we're seeing in how people are interacting with each other from class to class. So it's not as though the Starks aren't communicating where they stand in relation to their, quote, lessers, but everyone is still invited and they eat the same food that Lord Bran eats. Contrast this, though, to Joffrey. Remember this from a couple chapters ago from Sansa's second chapter where Boros Blunt is explaining what happened when he when Sansa heard a commotion at the walls? Some loose tongues spread tales of the preparations of Tyrek's wedding feast, and those wretches got it in their head that they should be feasted too. His grace let a sortie and sent them scurrying. 
so that's 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 the contrast there is that the Starks are inviting everyone in. Joffrey is sending everyone away with crossbow bolts. Yeah, it's it's a big contrast. But most of all, like the thing that hit me most in this reread of this chapter is how the feast works to make the Red Wedding such an insidious trap. It's it's not just that the phrase break guest right in the worst possible way. The additional layers that the Starks use feast to bring everyone together, to re-cement old bonds, to bring vassals together with their leech lord. The phrase manipulate the Stark tradition with the likely input of Bruce Bolton, who may have attended one or two harvest feasts at Winterfell in his time, to tear both the political blondes and human beings apart at the Red Wedding. It's just so insidious, ultimately, what the phrase and the, and the Boltons do at the Red Wedding, and that they use the pretext of a feast to kill everyone. So it's a trap, and it works really, really well as a trap. And it's just so heartbreaking looking back at this chapter and knowing that the Red Wedding is coming in just probably a year and a half or so for us. I love the idea of this as being an inverse of the Red Wedding, that this is the establishment of Stark power and the Red Wedding is the maw waiting for them when it all falls apart. And that you can see those different value systems being contrasted and the sense of wanting to hold on to something before it's too late. You know, both Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin are going to be dead by the end of this book. As Chloe says, Winterfell will be a smoking room by the time time Bran walks away. He has to learn these lessons before it's too late. And this chapter is one of the main ones where we see him learning those lessons. Yeah, everything you said about the Lannisters is so spot on. Tywin holds it above his people, right? He's like, well, maybe if you do my bidding and you be good feudal lords, then you will get to come to the feast and I will invite you and I will feed you if you do the things I ask of you. But the Starks are, our doors are open. If you're hungry, we will feed you. And it is pretty much what Mira and Jojen say, right? It's very... Very much so, like almost Bible texts that they're like, you know, please give our, our help, our needing help people, our, you know, people who are hungry and need help, give them good things and give them food, give them help. Thank you, Starks. Like, it's almost like kind of a <laughs> Give creepy, us your like, poor, give us your needy, yeah, which is, you know, like, a controversial idea when it was written and is a controversial idea now, but apparently. the Starks are sticking up, but those Starks are sticking up for those ideals. <laughs> And you can yeah. see Brand, Brand, it's Brand's turn to try to fit in and play that role. And he's learning what it is. Yeah, like maybe they're the lower percentile of the 1%, right? Like they're like the almost down to earth. Like they shop at Target. But I always say none of these guys are Beric Dondarrion. He's there to establish yeah. like this is what you'd be doing if really the upkeep of the peasants was your primary role. But the Starks are playing the game as best as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, Beric Dondarrion, those are the floor workers, right? Those are the people in the field doing it. And uh, the Starks have to show face, right? That's the other thing this Harvest Feast really is, is it's a broad stroke of showing appearances. The Harvest Feast isn't for Bran. It's for the people who support Winterfell to take strength in a Stark reign that nurtures them and protects them when the winters are hardest. That's what the Starks are known for, right? They're known for protecting their weak when the weak need it. And Bran very much so has to dress the part of a ruler, as we read through in this episode, and Throughout A Clash of Kings, Sansa, Arya, Bran, all of these kids are playing roles. Sansa's learning her role as Joffrey's sweet betrothed on the outside, dressed as a Lannister, but quite obviously bitterly laments it, as we learn later in A Storm of Swords. Uh, Arya is playing the role of serving girl in the Lannister camp currently as Weasel. Later, she adjusts to a Bolton, which makes Jane's marriage so ironic, obviously. In this chapter, Bran wishes he could be anything but the Stark in Winterfell. He's looking for any sort of escape. Instead of the royal wolf on his chest, he thinks he wishes it were summer emblazoned on his chest. Later, he finds the clothing and the rule itchy against his body about halfway through the chapter in Feast. With the dire wolf sigil comes a certain sense of power 
and responsibility, so to speak. Something Ned knew to wear and use throughout his brief stint as Hand of the King, right? Uh, in Eddard Eleven, he was clad in a white linen doublet with the direwolf of Stark on the breast, his black wool cloak fastened at the collar by his silver hand of office, black and white and gray, all the shades of truth. And then, of course, earlier on in Eddard Six in A Game of Thrones, he says, bring me my doublet, the gray with the direwolf sigil. I want this armorer to know who I am. It might make him more forthcoming. Uh, he's wearing his lord's face, and Bran knows he has to put that on. Where Bran starts the chapter rejecting this lordship and its itchy, stuffy clothes, it's, juxt it's juxtaposed really well against Bran Six, where he's dressed lordly by Lewin to hold a strong, stark front in front of Theon Greyjoy and his Ironborn in Winterfell. Uh, Lewin says to him, you're the Stark in Winterfell and Rob's heir. You must look princely. There's another echo, especially regarding his entrance on the horse. Uh, ceremonially speaking, it reminds me of him in the woods with Rob and Theon and the Free Folk south of the Wall. Bran is, in both of these scenarios, very much like Sansa going riding in King's Landing. He's a prisoner in his body. All Sansa can do in King's Landing is ride her horse in a circle in the Bailey all day. All for show, none of it for freedom. Right, and uh, one of our patrons over on our, our Not A Slack, uh, Nessie, brought up the great point that there's a contrast here between what Ty, what happens when Tywin Lannister rides into the, the into the Red Keep at the end of A Clash of Kings. What happens when Tywin rides and his horse shits all over the floor? It's it's demonstrating who Tywin Lannister is, and this is showing who Bran is, and that despite his disability, despite all of the many difficulties that he experiences he's able to ride well and to the point where where Rickon is like I should have been there I should have been the one riding I ride better and Rick Brand's like no you don't I ride better and that's I, I think I, honestly I think that's really cool that that George has that little line for Brand saying that because it does give Bram something that he can you know be have, have a little bit of pride about him about himself not just stark pride although that's definitely a part of it but also internal pride that he's able to ride a horse all again in some ways thanks to Tyrion for giving him the saddle back and Brand's fourth chapter and Brand's fourth chapter in a class, in a Game of Thrones. I love the points you you're, you both are making about how, in many ways, this is you know Brand coming into Ned's role, even though he's facing challenges that Ned specifically didn't have to face. Like Ned never had to face a disability, but so much of the strength Brand draws from Winterfell and from Ned's memory allows him to deal with that obstacle anyway. And that's something I think that speaks to good parentage is not just when your kids can deal with the same struggles you face, but when your kids can deal with different struggles from the ones you face, but using the ideals that you brought out of your struggles. And I think that's something you see very strongly with House Stark and with Ned's kind of ghost-like presence in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, what does he say to Bran? Do you know why we did this, Bran? No, Dad, why? Because our way is the old way. We're the Starks. That's what we do. His echo in this chapter isn't just in clothing, either. Everything he's taught his sons and daughters haunts this story, specifically when they're in Winterfell. Uh, Bran in this chapter really displays all of Ned's finesse, and I say that very loosely. We all know Ned didn't quite <laughs> finesse <laughs> politics. He's good at northern politics, but northern politics are not southern politics, as we know. Uh, Bran sits with his men here, right? Roderick tells him in the second Bran chapter in Clash, you're your brother's heir, you're the Stark in Winterfell, and he reminds him of sitting how Rob used to sit with their lord father when his bannermen came to see them. Uh, Bran looks up at the stone ceiling in Bran 2 and says, Rob would tell him not to play the boy. He could almost hear him and their lord father as well. Winter is coming. You're almost a man grown, Bran. You have a duty. And Bran really doesn't like the phrase there, but he doesn't <laughs> kick them out. 
John says in A Clash of Kings, John 2, right around the same time, My father once told me that some men are not worth having. A bannerman who is brutal or unjust dishonors his liege lord as well as himself. And later in A Dance with Dragons, he says, My lord father used to tell me a man must know his enemies. And Bran has that pretty much absorbed too. He knows he can't really be mean to the phrase, though he should be mean to the phrase, in my personal professional opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, later in the chapter, he brings the reeds to the godswood, which reminds me again of John 2 in A Clash of Kings, when John says that his lord father believed no man could tell a lie in front of the heart tree and that the old gods know when men are lying. I I think you bring up a a great point that while a lot of Ned's teachings and the things that he was communicating to his sons are all bleeding through in this chapter. And I, I love that constant refrain from both Bran and John specifically about how they're remembering things that their father had told them. Like, how are we supposed to react to these difficult circumstances that I'm finding myself in? How am I supposed to, in the case of Bran, interact with the phrase who I don't like? How am I supposed to interact with you know, these Night's Watchmen who are being pieces of shit to me as John is the Lord Commander. And they all fall back on Ned. And I think, that again, when we get back to talking about the legacy of Ned Stark, the, le- the legacy of Ned Stark is that his children remember him with fondness and hope to live up to his example. The legacy of Tywin Lannisters we're often contrasting is one where his kids, uh, the smart ones anyways, Jamie is trying to get away from that. And Cersei is attempting to emulate that and just falls down all around her, all around her at the end of A Feast for Crows. I think this is an important, vital part and thematic part of A Song of Ice and Fire is contrasting between the Lannisters and the Starks and also between the men, Ned Stark and Tywin Lannister. It's very bittersweet because on the one hand, you know, taking up his father's mantle, his father's chair, his father's cup, this should be the the central satisfaction of life, but it all happened too quickly and too bloodily, and he didn't get to say goodbye. And that we, we see the same thing in his relationship with Rob. And as we've said before, what lends these early Bran chapters in A Clash of Kings poignancy is how Bran is trying to perform the duties of Stark in Winterfell laid on him by Rob, even as he increasingly longs for something else. And why is that? Well, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of things going on. In part, it's just discomfort in the moment. It's too hot. It's too noisy. There's too much strong drink and strong food. These irritants are not the main problem, of course. They just peel back the surface to expose deeper currents of dissatisfaction. In part, it's regression into childhood. Bran is, you know, the classic bored child at the dinner party surrounded by adults who have all had several too many, and we've all been there. In part, it is about trying to forget about his disability for a night and ultimately failing. Of course, there's that devastating line in the chapter when he managed to forget about it for the length of riding the hall when everyone was cheering, but then he had to help back into his father's seat, and he remembered... In part, it's about his magical abilities that are now extending to waking dreams that he suddenly has this vivid flash of the godswood in the middle of the Great Hall. Maybe more than anything, what's driving Bran's alienation is everything and everyone that he has lost. It was as if some cruel god had reached down with a great hand and swept them all away. The girls to captivity, John to the wall, Rob and mother to war, King Robert and father to their graves, and perhaps Uncle Benjamin as well. Even down on the benches, there were new men at the tables. Jory was dead. And Fat Tom, and Porther, Alan, Desmond, Holen, who had been master of horse, Harwin, his son. Not true, by the way. All <laughs> those who had gone south with his father, even Septim Ordain and Veon Poole. The rest had ridden to war with Rob, and might soon be dead as well, for all Bran knew. He liked Hayhead, and Poxy Tim, and Skitrick, and all the other new men well enough, but he missed his old friends. He looked up and down the benches at all the faces, happy and sad, and wondered who would be missing next year and the year after. He might have cried then, but he couldn't. He was the Stark in Winterfell, his father's son and his brother's heir, and almost a man grown. 
Just as Bran's double vision as a warg shows him the wolves in the godswood, even as he sits in the Great Hall, so his fall from innocence shows him the bad times inside the good times, how all the new faces are haunted by the, the old faces of the people they replaced. In other words, this feast is supposed to be a tribute to life, but all Bran can see when he looks at it is death, just as his mother will next chapter, when she too is surrounded by food and drink and song uh, amidst the summer nights in, in Renly's camp. War will make them old, Catelyn said, as it did us. She had been a girl when Robert and Ned and John Arryn raised their banners against Aerys Targaryen, a woman by the time the fighting was done. I pity them. Why? Lord Rowan asked her. Look at them. They're young and strong, full of life and laughter. And lust, I more lust than they know what to do with. There'll be many a bastard bred this night, I promise you. Why pity? Because it will not last, Catelyn answered sadly. Because they are the nights of summer, and winter is coming. And that same melancholy feeling you get here when Bran is looking at everyone. As Atwell said, after these good times fade, after Jojen prophecies doom, after Ramsay kidnaps and kills Lady Hornwood, the Ironborn invade, take Winterfell, kill Northern boys in place of Bran and Rickon, and then Theon has that horrible dream of a feast for crows. He too dreams of the feast that Jeff was talking about, that when Ned threw when King Robert came to Winterfell, and he realizes that he's dining with the dead, King Robert with his guts spilling out, Ned is headless, all these corpses lining the benches, the others outside, Rob comes storming in, bleeding from half a hundred wounds. It's the same feast, it's the same scene, but inverted, but flipped over. And even though Bran, unlike Jojen, can't directly see the doom coming, he can't see the Ironborn coming in his dreams, he is getting old enough, cynical enough, to sense the doom underneath, that he is dining with the dead. And really, all of these problems are working on each other. You know what I mean? Like, the atmosphere is making him long for the wolf's body in the godswood. The loss of his childhood friends is making him miss his dreams of knighthood all the more. It all seems like one big problem just, just coming down on him. And it makes you feel sad because he's so young and has lost so much and he really just can't handle any of this. Man, I thought this was supposed to be a happy chapter, guys. Is that what we were saying at the beginning of this, this episode? A but you're, relatively you're, happy chapter. Relatively, Relatively. Yes. Jeff, you're you absolutely right. know who you're recording with. No, <laughs> back with my friends. You're very sad with my friends. Oh, the timing was exquisite there, sir. Well, timing and delivery. Uh, ten stars out of ten. Uh, I was like, but, who else is on this Skype call? <laughs> wow. Chloe catch a wow. queen. How, how harsh was that? That now now I feel sad deep down inside. But I but I think you're you're right. I mean, I think like he is looking at everyone down at the benches and seeing people that he's wondering if they're all going to be alive the next harvest feast and uh no no most of them are not going to be alive at the next harvest feast as the hornwood plot is just about to break out into mass atrocity all across all across the eastern part of westeros and the ironborn are about to invade the west western part of the north yeah and it's really a reintroduction of the hornwood plot and it comes in the second brand chapter in a clash of kings because in a game of thrones we kind of see the very subtle set off of this plot Donella Hornwood, who originally is a Manderley, as we noted, is married to Lord Hallis Hornwood. He dies, Tyrion eight in the Green Fork. Darren Hornwood, her son, is betrothed to Alice Karstark, but he dies as well. We learned that in Catelyn ten in A Game of Thrones, and John nine reconfirms it in A Dance with Dragons. In Brand two, Bran says he wants to help. Donella Hornwood with some sort of protection, but Maester Lewin and Roderick say, look, son, that's not how it goes. We can't spare people to help her. She can marry to protect herself. We can help make the match if she lets us, but that's not how it works. That's not how politics work. And Bran says, well, why? He thinks that's BS. 
Uh, but come Brand 3, Lady Hornwood comes to Winterfell. She requests protection. She seeks protection. And throughout the Harvest Feast, she gets hit on by men like Moore's Umber and Wyman Manderley drunkenly laying their charms upon her. But she doesn't really return their drunk, slobbering affections. So we go throughout this entire feast of alliance and strength. And at the very end, Donella is kidnapped by Ramsay on her way home because no one listened to her request for protection. They just tried to bone her. And these men are weak. They won't survive the winter, literally. But <laughs> I digress. I mean, it's true. So <laughs> sue me. But uh, it, this progression from brand two through brand four has so many subplots that parade across the screen and such a display of the Norse political climate deteriorating, even in the second book. Yes, Rob is winning the war so far. He's winning these battles, but he's losing important men, important lords that are throwing people in the north into secession crisis. Uh, people against each other and Bran's a really sweet boy he's continuously learning and he's about to transform into something new altogether but he's just a boy in this chapter a boy who once wanted to be a knight the politics at first read on this chapter almost feel a little sandbox right a little playground a little up north uh, I have I grew up in Michigan and I have family in northern Michigan <laughs> so I can say this word but hillbilly even uh, what comes after this, though, is real. Donella's torn off the road on her way home from the Harvest Feast by Ramsay and his crew. She's married to him against her will that night and locked in a tower, starved to death, blood around her mouth, fingers gnawed off. It turns to horror within a chapter. It's gruesome, and both Bran and his chapters have to grow up here quickly. Before he can cross that threshold with his new guardians and leaders, we see that he's capable. He has a chance at being a good ruler. He wants to send a hundred men to escort Danella home, but he's turned down by his officers. But isn't that what the Stark name means? Isn't that what wearing that direwolf across your chest symbolizes? We get that line of the Littles with Stark. When there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the King's Road in her name day gown and still go unmolested, and travelers could find fire, bread, and salt that many in and hold fast. But the nights are colder now and doors are closed. There's squids in the wolf's wood and flayed men ride the King's Road asking after strangers. We talk a lot about chapter progression at Girls Gone Canon, and we look at Bran's linear chapter arc as more of a whole when we talk about him, and it paints this picture, especially with the reads as the storytellers. Things have gotten bad in the North. No one has the authority to make the calls that need to be made, and it's gone into kind of a vegetative state. No the Ned, no Rob, just Lewin and Roderick doing their best. The better years between all that war sure were better years, but Ned's death is definitely showing in Winterfell. That is... Excellently said, Chloe. I think that's exactly what is being communicated here is that the good years created a sense of lethargy, maybe, in, in the North and allowed for this kind of stabilization, if you want to call it that, nicely, but kind of a, a, a way that things have just not really changed a whole lot in the North. Here, we're actually seeing what happens when the North is really and truly under threat of both the dual invasion, of both the invasion of the Ironborn as well as the machinations of Ramsay and Roose Bolton. And that's, uh, it leads to, to terrible, horrific consequences. And I, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things I do, I do think is, is awesome for you guys, the Girls Gone Canon podcast, and those of you who are listening who have never heard of it, which I don't know how you couldn't have at this point, is that going through chapter by chapter of a single point of view structure and point of view character allows us to see these things much more clearly. I mean, I, I read through all of Bran's chapters all the way to the end of A Storm of Swords prior to coming on this podcast. And you really do see that progression and how 
linear brand's arc is and what it feeds into and what it's communicating for for him. Because cha- brand as well as his chapters do grow up going from brand one all the way here to a Clash Kings brand three and to the end of a Dance of Dragons. Like brand is in a very different, more cynical, less innocent place at the end of his arc, or at least at the end of his published arc by the end of a Dance of Dragons. So this is all very gloomy for what I had promised with a happy chapter <laughs> previously. And Bran's feelings aren't purely glum here. There is some sweet along with the bitter. And my favorite part of this chapter comes early on, when he's, he's riding into the Great Hall and everyone's cheering. He was old enough to know that it was not truly him they shouted for. It was the harvest they cheered. It was Rob and his victories. It was his lord father and his grandfather and all the Starks going back 8,000 years. Still, it made him swell with pride. And that captures so well what might be the, the broadest possible way to define growing up. It's being aware of one's place in time, of the past inside the present inside the future, of mortality, of the, this, this contradiction of how you live in the present, but you can never define the present. There's no amount of time small enough to define what the present is. As soon as you say now, it's changed. You're constantly being reborn by the past and devoured by the future. And this awareness is central to the mature, holistic, reconciled self that is the central fo- focus of the hero's journey structure Chloe was talking about. It's a definition of how to live with the knowledge of your mortality, of how to live inside of time's fire. Brand knows now that a thousand lives live in him, that he is becoming more than an individual. The meaning of Stark, that narrative Chloe was talking about from the little, runs through him from the past into the future. With, with the knowledge of one's mortality, you can find a certain immortality. He is now a linchpin of history. And it makes him swell with with pride, and not just pride, but the the pride that comes leaving with something important, namely love, the generous kind of pride, the one you want to pass on. There's the wonderful, sweet moment when he passes on sweets to Old Nan and Hodor for no reason but that he loved them. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes for him, is for that reason to reach out. And that's unfortunately rare for people in power in Westeros right now. And you have this focus throughout the chapter on on booze and sex and lots of like earthy adult realities everyone's getting drunk everyone's getting laid you have joseph getting laid out right outside the great hall and this this emphasizes not just that these are the good times because that's just what happens during the good times but also that bran is growing up and this is part of growing up that new identities and new worlds and new realities become available to you when you become an adult and there's a lot of a lot of joy and a lot of great discovery that goes along with that it doesn't fix his legs it doesn't bring his family back. And as we see throughout the series, the name of Stark is something you always have to fight for. It's not just laurels you can rest upon. But it is something real. It's something that, that gives Bran's life meaning and something that pulls him back from the edge. And for me, that really helps connect Bran's magical and political side, something we've talked a fair amount about on the Nauticast. Through his eyes, we see the cycles of political power kind of connected to the cycles of nature, that one Stark dies, feeds the earth, and is reborn in the next one. Bran sees both the Great Hall and the Godswood. For him, they're the same place, part of the same whole, that duality in his place within it. Coming back on reread, you you really can feel everything kind of snapping into place and orbiting this kid. But he is still just a kid, and he is still struggling with these things in a very childish way. And Rickon is there to represent that side of him, the kind of just unhappy, lashing out, doesn't understand what's going on. That, you know, Bran feels that way to a large extent, too. Joining the circle of life doesn't necessarily answer your own individual wants and needs, and it's so telling that Bran wants Summer with him instead of the dire wolf pin. He doesn't want the representation of the thing. He wants the thing. He doesn't care about the abstract idea of House Stark. He wants his flesh and blood family back. That's what makes lines like this so sad. He watched them as from a distance, as if he still sat in the window of his bedchamber. 
looking down on the yard below, seeing everything, yet a part of nothing. And obviously that's foreshadowing him showing up at the Winterfell tree and having this overall grand sight as a godlike figure. But it's sad because he doesn't want that distance. He doesn't like that detachment. Unlike Stannis, who kind of does want to be detached from people and look loom over Westeros <laughs> like the, painter, the chamber of the painted table. Bran wants to be down with them and can't. And that's just tragic. What I think is like what's happening too for Bram is that he doesn't have any friends there. He has Clay Sarwin who shows up who's I think about four years older than Bran. He shows up in, in Bran's second chapter, but he doesn't have any peers. He's got his younger brother, Rickon, who acts mostly as an irritant to Bran in most of these class chapters. But he's mostly got Maester Lewin and Roger Cassell telling him what to do. But all of that changes in this Third, the last third of this chapter, namely with the introduction of the reeds. And man, is that just kind of a game changer for Bran Stark, both in unlocking his magical ability more and more, at least becoming more conscious of it, as well as providing him friends, people that he can communicate with at a, at a level of a nine-year-old. Yeah, he gets to almost be a kid for a second, which is kind of what he wants. Like, if he can't be a knight, at least he can have a little adventure, right? What's the cat's going to have a little salami mean? Bran can have a little adventure. Bran can have a little salami. <laughs> As a treat. As a treat. <laughs> I don't get these references. <laughs> it's okay, Jeff. Plug in more. <laughs> Jeff needs to spend more time online? I don't, think that's true. I don't think that's a true thing. That's true. I've seen his Twitter, unfortunately. <laughs> wow. wow. Like I said, we were friends before, and here we are. I'm just getting shade just, just tossed on top of me. It's overcast in my house right now. Listen, not a cast changes people, Jeff. It sure does. But the reads I know are favorite characters of yours, Chloe, and a lot of that has to do with how they're wrapped up in that, that great Ned backstory, that Ned legacy you were talking about. One of the most prominent ghosts of Ned hanging over this chapter is Mira and Jojen, right? They're the children of the very last person to have known of death known of dad's deepest sorrow after that he remembered nothing they had found him still holding her body silent with grief the little cranigman howlin reed had taken her hand from his ned could recall none of it that's one of the very first passages we ever hear about howlin reed in and that's a very intimate passage right like that is that's one of the closest memories to ned that he has that he shares with almost no one but Howland Reed knows it. And Mira and Jojen really serve as those facets of Howland, of loyalty, of duty, of good hearts. Howland was the companion with Ned who learned all of it, right? The Samwise Gamgee who has to go on and has Eleanor and Frodo with his wife, Rosie. But Eleanor and Frodo realize they have to go assist one of the Chosen Ones, and Dad sends them off to war like he once went with the Stark in Winterfell, but not war like any of them have ever seen or expected. This time, everything's different. Mm, so well said. And the reeds just snap into Bran's story like perfect puzzle pieces. Exactly what the story needs at this exact moment. You have all these heady philosophical conflicts surrounding Bran, life and death, politics and magic, childhood and adulthood. He feels it all washing over him, and it's just too much. And you might feel as the reader, a first-time reader, okay, so... What's going to make this dam break? What's going to lead Bran in a new direction where we can start to resolve these problems? And that's when the reeds walk in. And this really is one of the most effective and layered character introductions in the story. From the very first moment, at the foot of the hall, the doors opened and a gust of cold air made the torches flame brighter for an instant. There it is, the central metaphor of ice and fire, the titular elements of the story. It says so much that George frames Mira and Jojen this way. There's, there's lots of ways to break this down. First of all, 
just by making the reader think about the title of the series in this moment, by making them breaking the immersion and making the reader go, oh, right, I'm reading a book called A Song of Ice and Fire. George encourages us to think of Mira and Jojen as self-conscious characters, not self-conscious people in universe. They are very much not but characters that call attention to their status as fictional characters. They have been dropped in with scare quotes. They are characters who embody story itself, which bears fruit in A Storm of Swords when they tell the Knight of the Laughing Tree story. And that speaks to Bran's central role in A Song of Ice and Fire, that characters who represent storytelling and who are introduced as if, like, heralds by Ice and Fire themselves are here for him, the protagonist, the center of the story. Now, of course, the Union of Ice and Fire also carries connotations for Jon Snow, which we'll talk about more later in the episode, and as Halen reads children, Jojen and Mira are inextricably tied to R plus L equals J. But the fact that we see both ice and fire collapse into this single frame, this like single shot, and that the icy wind makes the flame burn brighter, it speaks not to a war between ice and fire, but a surprising synthesis. And this is a theme that will become increasingly prominent in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, a suspicion of rigid dichotomies and a preference for unions of the seeming opposite and no characters make that theme more clear than jojen and mira reed there's that great conversation in that chapter a storm of swords brand two where uh, mira is talking about how she both loves and hates these mountains in stark territory and brand's like he tilts his head like a dog and goes what and mira says why can't it be both she reached up to pinch his nose because they're different brand insisted like night and day or ice and fire if ice can burn said jojen in his solemn voice then love and hate can mate. Mountain or marsh, it makes no matter. The land is one. It's such an important point, and that's why they're so important to Bran. Because as we see throughout this chapter and throughout this book, he is struggling to reconcile his selves. Is he a prince, or is he a warg? And you know, it might seem like Jojen's presence points definitively to the latter, to the warg side. Because Jojen is one of those magical herald characters we see all over Clash of Kings, like Melisandre, or Jochen, or Quaithe. But in truth, as we see in this chapter... The Reed siblings embody the whole of Bran's identity. Before Jojen ever brings up Bran's third eye, the Reeds are here to honor his political side, reaffirming the bond between their houses. And their oath, I think, really is like the culmination of the political themes of the last couple of Bran chapters, right before, as we've all said, things start to go sideways with Ramsay and the Ironborn. This is where we see, most explicitly and earnestly, the nature of the feudal relationships that keep the North together, together under House Stark. The Reeds, speaking on behalf of the Neck, ask for justice, protection, and mercy, in exchange for which they submit to taxation and conscription. And the give-and-take nature of that oath is key. It embeds the Reed's holistic duality thing into the larger political themes, that the relationship is symbiotic. It's not parasitic. Hmm. This is the system working as it's supposed to. It both accepts and demands responsibility. And as such, that ties perfectly into Bran's arc as a maturing young man forced to deal with responsibilities and limitations. And while, yeah, Bran, as Chloe said, is dealing with this at a, at a nine-year-old level, he doesn't have a prepared response as flowing and eloquent as the Oath of the Reeds, but like a promising young student should, he gets the core of it right. He gets the ice and fire core of it right. May your winters be short and your summers bountiful, he said. That was usually a good thing to say. Rise, I'm Brandon Stark. And it's no accident that he uses his full name, which he so rarely does. Because in this moment... He is truly acting as a Stark, the Ur-Stark, Bran the Builder. The mantle of history and heritage is settling on his shoulders. Yes, Bran engages with politics in a simple, childish way, befitting his status as the youngest POV in the series, but he understands the give and take. We keep coming back to uh, A Storm of Swords Bran, too, because it has just so much in common, so many links with this chapter. 
And there's that great part that I, I know Chloe loves so much right after they part with the little... Uh, when they woke the next morning, the fire had gone out and the little was gone, but he left the sausage for them, and a dozen oat cakes folded up neatly in a green and white cloth. Some of the cakes had pine nuts baked in them, and some had blackberries. Bran ate one of each, and still did not know which sort he liked the best. One day there would be Starks and Winterfell again, he told himself, and then he'd send for the littles and pay them back a hundredfold for every nut and berry. And again, it's it's politics seen through the lens of food. This giving of assistance, this humble service rendered, is not incidental. It's the core of the Stark relationship to their vassals, and Bran gets it, which is just great. I love that. I love him. And I'm always looking at these things now with season eight in mind of Bran's ultimate purpose being these, the king of, of Westeros, or of the six kingdoms of Westeros, with Sansa up there in the north. And I think Bran's getting a really useful education in how rulers are supposed to rule, and how the feudal contract in a perfect setting is supposed to work it's not supposed to be your tywins or joffreys or even your roberts and stannises and renleys lording over the the peasants and and honoring one class above all it's about an exchange of goods and services on going both ways in a feudal structure in a perfect feudal structure the exchange is supposed to be the peasants give food and the lords give protection that's supposed to be the exchange going on and that's what the reeds are communicating both in their oath that they give to to brandon stark as well as what bran is giving back to to them and talking about what their what place they have in the role in, in bran's life and you, you bring up the great point of of bran like getting this he's he's not being told that oh well i've been given stuff by this little guy here in a storm of swords brand too uh he makes that implicit connection this person saved us he gave us food he gave us warmth he gave us shelter he gave us a part of his fire and i am going to repay this entire people for the kindness of one man like that's exactly what a king is supposed to and not just a king what a noble honorable politician is supposed to do for the people that he is representing in a democratic society and you know i think that's part of what george's overall political point is in a song of ice and fire is that is is that there's an exchange in in a perfect world in a not even a perfect world in a in a good political setting and you know that exchange though goes beyond simply what the politician does for his people and what the people does for the what the person or the people do for the politicians it's also that kind of exchange of what the magical and political side do brand needs both of these elements in his personality and in his education to bring this to bring the story to an ultimate close and ultimately king bran is a representation of the unity of ice and fire it's a representation of the magical and the political forming one cohesive unit that hopefully will rule well and wisely for 100 years or however long aragorn ruled at the end of at the end of a return of the king there's that line from the show and it's a show only line but it's actually a line i really like so give dnd awards you know for the best tv show Mira Reed says, you know, people will always need help. That doesn't mean they're not worth helping. And I do feel like that caught a little bit of that brevity of Winterfell in the books and of what Bran is learning. Um, I think he has to kind of walk on that wild side for a little bit to kind of figure out that, hey, you're too close to the sun, Icarus, back off. Uh, and something about his name you know being named brandon after all of these names of brandon in the past what is his legacy as a brandon stark what will he do there's brand the builder you know there's brandon snow there's all these different brandons of history and lore and past what is brandon stark of winterfell going to do first well some people have ideas that are either correct or wrong but i will not state them here on this podcast but 
he has the makings of being a very good Brandon Stark. That's what this chapter signifies. Absolutely. It's showing the ideal, as Jeff says, and then it's then George twists it, as he tends to. The politics play out in a more complicated way because this is no longer just the kingdom of the north. This is Rod's new kingdom of the north and rivers, and the Walders Frey from the Riverlands are here specifically to get in the way of the unity. Men looked up from their crops and trenchers to eye the newcomers. Bran heard little Walder mutter, frog eaters, to Big Walder beside him. Sir Roger climbed to his feet. Be welcome, friends, and share this harvest with us. Serving men hurried to lengthen the table on the dais, fetching trestles and chairs. Who are they? Rickon asked. Mudmen, answered little Walder disdainfully. They're thieves and cravens, and they have green teeth from eating frogs. And later on, when Jojen displays interest in seeing the dire wolves, he'd best watch they don't see him, or let's take a bite out of him. So in part, little Walder, just being horrible and bigoted, is there to act as a counterpoint to the sincere sweetness of the oath being presented by the reeds and, and the way Bran responds to it. This is why House Stark, greater than sign House Frey, in a nutshell. But it also speaks to ugly histories between the members of this new coalition in the same way that the Dornish versus the Reach history comes up in A Storm of Swords when Tywin is trying to make them all into one great house. And as always, what makes the, the young Walders so great as characters is... All the intricate power plays being performed by the adults in their family have trickled down to them, but they don't know not to say it out loud. So they, they just go ahead and, and blurt out the worst instincts of their family over every, everyone passing by. And, you know, the Neck, the area of the reeds, it was integrated smoothly into the north, the old north to which Mira refers thousands of years ago. And, you know, the Marsh King's magic was joined to that of House Stark. They've acted in concert with Moat Caelan as an indispensable defense for the north ever since. It was integrated well. The phrase aren't being integrated as smoothly, in part just because they're assholes, but also because they have different interests. They are all about squeezing local commerce for every cent. And you know, Freyland's border the neck, and the Fenfolk's history of smuggling and stealing and bartering makes them the ultimate nemesis for the Lords of the Twins. These are just not people who are going to get along. Moreover, they don't have the bond of first men culture, nor yet the bonds of marriage to make the phrase think more kindly of the Cranog men. So this is an early sign that, you know, Rob, Rob's kingdom... It might be kind of in trouble if you have to try to force these people to get along, and the success of this kingdom will depend on, on how well it goes. And it also establishes the reeds as both as both insiders and outsiders. You know what I mean? On the one hand, they're saying, we belong here more than anyone. We have served you for thousands of years. We know you. You know us. On the other hand, in this new kingdom, they they have this bigotry to deal with. And even within the north, people in the neck are culturally very different from a lot of the rest. So this forces Bran to consider his own perspective and how they should fit into it. And he passes the test. I love it. He's he's like, he's curious about their culture. He says to Sir Roderick, so they really, so frogs, huh? They really eat frogs? And he's like, yeah. And he thinks, oh, well, maybe they just haven't tried our stuff. And he and he hands it along. And it's just like, that's the, that's the best you can hope for from a kid, that he's acting with empathy instead of fear when he crosses these cultural boundaries. Do you think it's fair to say that this is, uh, the stark ethos and miniature that we're seeing here this is this emphasizes why they were able to hold the north for so long absolutely i think we we see bran here recognizing that oh these guys don't have any cows where they live so i'm going to send them beef that that sounds like the the perfect gift for, to give to these guys it's 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 like a it's a, like a rare treat it's like giving the the reed kids a little bit of ice cream like that's it's a, the start the starks are the starks are the ice cream men is what i'm basically saying the ice <laughs> cream men yeah you get the it. little hats but yeah it's like it's not it's not oh they're gross and weird for not having tried beef it's that oh they haven't tried beef i wonder if they'll like it like that's that's the attitude you 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 love to see that in your kids right that's the attitude you hope your kids take when they meet people who have a different culture than them and it's in such contrast to the phrase 
So that is how the the reads fit into the, the the larger themes of the story, and we'll get more into how they push Bran's plot forward as we go through a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords. But just talking more about them as individuals, as they are introduced here, a lot is packed into their descriptions. You have the description of Mira's dress, lambskin breeches soft with long use, a sleeveless jerkin armored in bronze scales, a woven net hung from one slim hip, a long bronze knife from the other. And then you have Jojen. Her brother was several years younger and bore no weapons. All his garb was green, even to the leather of his boots, and when he came closer, Bran saw that his eyes were the color of moss, though his teeth looked as white as anyone else's. I love that little dig at the end there. His teeth looked as white as anyone else's. That's a great way of establishing Bran's POV, that Bran is testing Little Walter's bigotry, and Little Walter's bigotry is failing the test. That's great. But I love how that the reeds, while they do have a lot in common, they, they also have a lot that's, that marks them apart from each other. Mira exudes just, like, competence and control, like few characters in this series, because the series is generally about people who are just overcome with flaws and blind spots, losing self-control. <laughs> Mira is in command of her environment, at peace with her place in it, and as such, she has carved out a space in which she can, above all, contribute to others' well-being, helping those who can't help themselves, as Chloe said, quoting from the show. We will see this over and over again on the road, and I think that is inextricable from the obvious reference point for her character, which, as Chloe said, is Tolkien. Mira is, is dropped straight out of Lord of the Rings, and so she is a reassuring presence in part... Because she has been airdropped in from the source code of high fantasy. She is a repository of familiar images from childhood. She is a character deliberately designed to evoke your nostalgia. For a lot of urban and suburban kids, she's also tied, I think, to fantasies of wilderness survival. Like uh, My Side of the Mountain or any number of Gary Paulson books. That idea that I, child living in the suburbs of Buffalo, New York, could go out and make (laughs) it in the wild if I really had to, if my mom got on my case again. You know, Mira Reed is that kind of character. After all, she was raised by Howlin' Reed, and Howlin' Reed knows every swamp and sandbar in the neck like the back of his hand. And then, like, the camera pans over to her little brother, and you go, oh, okay. Here's where Howland's weird side ended up. Here's the guy who spent his gap year getting high with the green man on the Isle of Faces. Jojen bears no weapons because, as with Tyrion, his mind is his weapon. Just as everything Mira has on speaks to her skills as tracker and hunter and scout, Jojen's all-green getup is Howland's way of saying, yeah, this one's the wizard. Like, Mira is dressed for camouflage. Jojen is, is dressed to stand out, and is, st- is dressed to send a statement. His green sight identity defines him to the core, from his clothes to his eyes to his dreams, as we will find out. Again, it's the duality. It's as if Howland has been split in two. The way we talked about Robert being split into two into Stannis and Renly, Howland has been split into two into Jojen and Mira. And while Mira, as we'll see throughout the series, takes delight in the natural world and the rush of time and the present moment, Jojen is out of time and space. And as such, he is focused like a laser on the only life that matters. The girl, Mira, got to her feet and helped her brother up. The boy stared at Bran all the while. So where Mira is reassuring, Jojen is extremely creepy. And the union of the two defines Bran's character as both the last green seer and the prince slash future king. It's like, I always picture Mira and Jojen surrounded by fog and mist. Like, not only because they come from the neck, where there's a lot of fog and mist, but because they feel so out of time. Like, you see that in their literary roots and their connection to ancient Stark history, the way they're wrapped up in storytelling, the links to R plus L equals J. And in this chapter specifically, they are consistently linked to Robert's Rebellion. And Bran, you know, you have um, uh, Lewin saying, you have to be kind to this one because they're kids of Howland Reed, and Bran thinking, oh yes, Howland Reed was father's companion during the war. And then Bran takes the next step beyond that to tie them specifically to his dreams of knighthood. There's that great sad passage, something his father had told him once when he was little came back to him suddenly. 
He had asked Lord Edward if the King's Guard were truly the finest knights in the Seven Kingdoms. No longer, he answered, but once they were a marvel, a shining lesson to the world. Was there one who was best of all? The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me but for Howland Reed. Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished we had asked him what he meant. He went to sleep with his head full of knights in gleaming armor, fighting with swords that shone like starfire. But when the dream came, he was in the godswood again. So it's again that image of the Tower of Joy, those those knights in gleaming armor fighting with swords that shone like starfire, and the sorrow and the guilt and the loss that Ned has as a result of this. And that's one of the reasons we, we knew we had to have Chloe on, because we had her on for the Tower of Joy. We're talking so much about the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter, and I think about it like a, like a triptych. You know, when you got the three paintings that tell a story all together, it's like the first one is a Game of Thrones that attend the Tower of Joy chapter. And the last one is a Storm of Swords brand two, the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter. And this one, a Clash of Kings brand three, this is the middle painting. This is the connective tissue that defines that entire story. And that's where the reeds fit in. They are embodiments of the past and storytelling. And as such, they are here to get Bran to accept his new role in this story as he comes of age. And they will do so in part by interrogating the stories of the past. They are the ones who will cross the borders in his brain to show them the big picture which is exactly, of course, what they do at chapter's end. You have Bran escaping into his dreams and his wolf at the end of Bran 3. His warg self kept chained and separate from the prince self, like Danny's dragons in A Dance with Dragons, mm-hmm. the parallel we were making earlier. And it's interesting how the reeds have these two introductions, these two arrivals that parallel in the Great Hall and the Godswood. In both cases, they're coming before Bran and Rickon, in the first case literally, in the second case before them dreaming in their wolf selves. They're coming before them at the heart of Stark Power, the two ways of thinking about the heart of Stark Power, the Godswood and the Great Hall. And in both cases, they've come to offer their services. Great Hall and the Godswood, the boys and the wolves. The point is, is that the reeds are here to unite these two worlds and reveal them as one. Jojen senses Bran inside Summer. There's that figure he was having dreams about, the winged wolf, Prince of Winterfell in both the political and magical senses. And just before the power of that recognition shatters Bran into pieces across the astral plane as the chapter ends, Jojen drops this bomb. He won't hurt me. This is not the day I die. And we will talk a lot more about the ramifications of that line and how it defines Jojen's character at length all through the rest of Bran's story. But even in this chapter, it fits the context of Bran's arc so perfectly. Jojen knows the day he dies. That's his place in the grand cycle of life and death and rebirth we were talking about. And what an unnatural place that is. Like, you think about how, like, what, as many people have said, part of what separates humans from other animals is that we know we're going to die. Imagine how separate Jojen is from us as humans, that he knows exactly how he's going to die. That's what makes him so off-putting. Because unlike Mira, who's grounded in earth and water and sky, Jojen's all in on ice and fire. He feels as much like a children of, he feels as much like one of the children of the forest as he does like a human being. And so we see him declaring knowledge of death itself as he reaches out to Bran. And for me, rereading it this time, it felt like he was almost breaking the fourth wall. Like he was reaching past the protagonist to us to tell us he's seen the structure of the story and is just mired in the bittersweet ending. So I think long before you know what Jojen Reed is really all about as a character, I think you get that, that wonderful off-putting sense for, from that ending and how he fits into everything. It's just perfect. It's a magical being. I think Mira works as like kind of a bridge between 
Jojen and Bran, like she's kind of the every woman, so to speak, and that she is able to communicate with Bran. And she demonstrates a bit of doubt on, on some things that that Jojen says to Bran throughout A Clash of Kings and on to Storm and, and to Dance with Dragons. So she's relatable to Bran. But Jojen is ultimately right every single time, even though it's a little bit ambiguous how right he is as he starts to talk about his prophetic abilities in Bran's fifth chapter in A Clash of Kings. And some of those prophetic, some of the prophecies he makes are... Um, they're ambiguous, but they, they end up being true in, in a certain sense. I think, too, you brought up the point about, like, Jojen has this, he seems like a green, like a like a child of the forest. And that, you know, we talked about this theory back in, I want to say, Catelyn's eighth chapter in the Game of Thrones. But there's that great theory that the reeds derive from a union between the first men and the children of the forest. Like, it, you could almost make the, the, the case that Mira is more of, like, the first man in terms of, like, her understanding of things. And Jojen is much more of the child of the forest. So it's not yeah, just that. Yeah, I like that. The, the two sides of, of Hal and Reed, it's also the two sides of the union of the first the children of the force and the first men in the form of House Reed itself and in the Kranich men. So I, I th- these are fascinating characters. And this is one of the things I'm most excited about getting into in the Not A Cast podcast is getting really in depth on these characters because they're I'm, I'm not saying I didn't understand their importance before I came into this podcast, but I'm really getting the sense that they're much they're of much more greater both literary value and narrative value in the story for Bran and for us as readers as we start to understand his endgame and knowing the endgame point of Bran being the king of Westeros and knowing what Jojen and Mira are bringing to Bran and unraveling that arc. It makes them so much more fascinating and much more compelling of characters. So I'm very excited to do this as we're going to go through all of Bran's interactions with Jojen and Mira from here and on to the end of A Dream of Spring or The Winds of Winter in the case of Jojen. Or A Time for Wolves. Or a time for wolves, exactly. Yes, right. Jojen would approve so hard. <laughs> so, shifting to foreshadowing and groundwork, we have this one little line in passing when uh, Lewin is explaining that one of the reasons the Walders have to sit on the dais is because they will be family soon. Not only Rob is marrying into, a, into the phrase, but so is Arya. And Bran says, nah, Arya's never going to do that. And yeah, Bran is predicting the future here before he even gets the rest of his powers. He is right that Arya will in fact never marry her Frey because Arya will not be found and the marriage alliance will be thrown into disarray anyway. And George does return to the subject later on in the Clash of Kings very comedically at Harrenhal with Elmar Frey, not realizing that the serving girl to whom he's condescending is in fact the Stark princess that he has been betrothed to. And that's like a wonderful like comedy of manners thing George does, the classic situation where the the prince doesn't recognize his princess because she's dressed in lower garb. So that's that's just a fun little background detail that George sets up. So our second and final piece of foreshadowing for this chapter is that Bran thinks actually wrongly about the Kranichman's style of fighting as, quote, a cowardly people who fought with poison weapons and preferred to hide from foes rather than face them in open battle. Well, that's going to be seen in some significant detail in A Dance of Dragons as Theon is going to very narrowly avoid a Kranich arrows being fired at him from the bogs as he rides up to Moat Kaelin. And then he sees Ralph Kenning, the uh, nominal commander of the Ironborn garrison, barely alive after being hit by one of those poison Kranich arrows. So, shifting into our theory uh, discussion portion of the episode. Chloe, are you ready to tell us all about your theory that uh, John and Mira are twins? I'm literally leaving the podcast. They have the same hair- hairstyle, right? Oh Rob, so they Rob have and to be Mira. twins. Yeah, and they're both like the same age, so they're, they're twins. You guys know this is why people don't like you, right? We'll start with July 9th, 2012. There's a So Spake Martin where George R.R. R. Martin spoke on a handful of topics for a Q&A at Seattle Town Hall. And one of the most interesting questions asked was about Mira and Jojen and what they might know about the Tower of Joy. George said that the Reeds might know something about it. I thought that was an interesting one. 
right? That they might know something about it. And you'd imagine that because Howland knew something about it. George has really stayed ambiguous about some of these players like Howland in the Rebellion, right? Howland Reed, Ashara Dane, all these characters remain the biggest mysteries from the 1980s. I mean, not the 1980s. Wait a second. The 280s. There are a lot of questions like, what were they doing? (laughs) Where were they doing these things? Who were they with while they were doing these things? Like, we don't know crap about what they were doing through this couple year span of time. We know what John Con, what Ned, what Robert, what Rhaegar mostly did and thought, but these two guys, we know nothing about them. George has also said in a Sosbank Martin that Ashara's body was never found, and he's also said that she wasn't nailed to the floor when she was in Starfall, as a lot of fans who write to him seem to assume. He says that they have horses in Dorne, so you know, and boats, although not many of their own. And as a matter of fact, she was one of Princess Elia's lady companions in King's Landing in the first few years after Elia married Rhaegar. And he said that the rest he'd save for books. Now, this is from 1999. If what he's planning has changed, no one knows. Lots could have changed by then. And I know you guys are kind of very vanilla Ned Nashara bonked truthers. I know you two. I know what you're about. I know what you're into. But there's a So Spake Martin from January of 2001 that I think might bode pretty well for you. George was asked about some of the parallels between Ned and Ashara possibly mirroring Romeo and Juliet. And if they had consciously been drawn from that story right from the Shakespeare play. George said, and I quote, because as we know, the way George delivers things or says things are important. Sorry, comma, but no. I like to kind of favor the idea that maybe Ned, as the Stark that Ashara turned to, found a home for her, possibly in Greywater Watch, maybe a northern match so she wouldn't have to marry someone else or be, you know, accosted for the treason she likely could have committed when she more than likely told Ned where his sister was in the Tower of Joy. It's unsaid, but I feel like there's a handful of off-the-topic things George has said that pretty much say... The Danes, who were basically the only other people besides the Kingsguard that knew about this, probably knew. That's what he's saying. In some of these Sospake Martins from George, he refuses to say anything about Ashara or Howland and what they're doing. It's very much so cast aside to that keep reading pile. The whole big theory, you guys, is that instead of jumping off of a tower because her life sucked so bad because her brother died from the guy she was in love with that she probably had a baby with that died. Ashara married Howland and is living in Greywater Watch. And may I add, Greywater Watch is the place where no one can find it just from looking at a map. The place where no maesters are to report to the Citadel. No knights at arms, no master at arms. So very easy hidden place, but the character that actually sells this theory for me in a lot of these chapters is the lady of House Reed, which was introduced as such in this chapter to us, if you guys noted. I don't know if you noted it or if you saw that I underlined it in the notes, you two, but Mira was introduced as the heir to House Reed, as the lady, not Jojen. I don't know. She knows far too much about Howland's adventures in the 80s, right? Like... Far, far too much. She knows about the Red Mountains of Dorne in depth. She knows everyone that danced with Ashara Dane by heart. She's basically the same age as John or Rob in between there. And Howland would have been at war with Ned when Mira was conceived. There's a ton of parallels between the Danes and Reeds, right? Swathy, guerrilla warfare, like you guys were just talking about. Even magical. 
The Dane reconnection is really introduced in this chapter as we learn what happened or what we don't know what happened between Helen and Arthur. And there's a lot of tonal resonance in this as well. There's Barristan who projects on Daenerys about Ashara. He says Dorne sent her mud, but sometimes women might actually want mud. Maybe just because it's you, Barristan, you just don't know. Uh, she turned to Stark. Yes, some people think it means she had sex with Brandon or Ned, but she turned to Stark is kind of a turn of phrase. It could mean many things, and Barristan doesn't equate that same exact sentence with her stillborn baby, right? It's a little weirdly phrased, and I think that's for a reason. She's a part of that B-list cast of the Rebellion, and she's a part of that background romance. She's brought up far more in detail, very few details far in between, but more detail than pretty much any of the ladies in the Rebellion. There's so much mystery regarding these houses that, I don't know, you guys, it could be something. I love it. I think it works on a number of levels. You have the name Gianna Reed, which is the the name we're given for Helen's wife, which, as you pointed out before, seems like a mashup of John and Liana hinting at a possible connection there. The fact that George, you know, always laughs it off and never confirms that Ashar is dead seems like a giant neon sign to the fandom that there's more to be said there. And, yeah, there's this this, this, this link of, of, of mysteriousness and magic in the backstory that is strongly suggestive. And I, and I, I, I you have this, this, this figure and archetype of the princess in the tower that George plays with that is doomed to a tragic ending. And sometimes he plays that straight, as with uh, Helena in the backstory, and sometimes he doesn't, as with Sansa, who considers throwing herself to that fate, but then pulls back. Or Ariane, who literally gets a chapter called The Princess in the Tower, but emerges alive and stronger than ever. And I think you, you could see that with Ashara, that what George is trying to communicate is like, you know, that uh, the grand romance of killing yourself isn't real, isn't the kind of climax you should really want for life. But a, a, a quiet life hidden away from all of this is what's better. And I could see him using that as like a humble counterpoint to the grand, you know, dramatic blood and roses arcs of so many other characters in a way that fits the neck and fits the reeds that this is a place of isolation and a place where you can hide. And I think that 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 fits that so beautifully. But I think, yeah, I think what really first swayed me was thinking like, yeah, Mira does know a lot about who's dancing with this one random woman at the tourney of Harrenhal, doesn't she, during the Night of the Laughing Tree story. Why would that be? And that that just fits George so well, I think, in terms of showing the way he plays with perspective and uses people's attention to draw to you know draw your eye to what they find important. I was doing a, a post back in, uh, I'm looking at the post right now, back in April of 2018 called Keep Reading, Analyzing the So Spake Martin Archive for Future Story Hints. And the one I, I was referencing was the conclusion, which is all about the Winds Winter, Dream of Spring, and future Duncan Egg stories. And one of the things that kept recurring in answers that George was given was how often Ashara came up and how often George avoided the question or would say we'll learn more about it in the future of the story. Like if Ashara simply threw herself off of a cliff, that should be the end of the story. Like we've gotten the end of the story there. Why, why, what are the future revelations we're going to need that were, that would stem from, from that? Yeah, I think it really speaks strongly of sacrifice, which to kick it back to that theme, like we talked about in the beginning of the episode with Wolfman Zack, uh, sacrifice right what they sacrifice what the danes sacrificed it said really well uh especially with the sadness on ned's face right when he says to bran he would have killed me but for howland reed the ambiguity between but for howland reed and look to stark uh george is careful with his words right he's very careful with his words he likes wordplay he likes using words and he likes playing with them it's an art for him obviously he's written all of these amazing books that we gush about and 
I very much so think it's important the choice of words he uses there. When Mira watches during Night of the Laughing Tree, or sorry, when Mira storytells the Night of the Laughing Tree and talks about Ashara, she says that Ashara's eyes were laughing. Nobody says Ashara's eyes are laughing. Cersei says they're, well, Ned thinks when Cersei's talking about her that they're haunting. Ned constantly thinks they're haunting. Catelyn thinks they were haunting. Everybody that feels guilt about Ashara feels like they're haunting eyes, but Mira Reed, she says they were laughing eyes. Who would see laughter in Ashara's eyes? Well, that's a wonderful note of happiness to close out this episode on. So that does it for Clash of Kings Brand 3. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thank you, Chloe, so much for joining us for this. This was a delight as we knew it would be. Yeah, well, where can, where can we find you on the internet? And, where can, and tell us a little bit about Girls Gone Canon. I know you've talked about it in the past before, but if people are just tuning in for this episode and they want to learn about Girls Gone Canon. Absolutely. Well, you can check us out on any podcast platform you may favor. We are on all the usuals, the iTunes, the Spotify, the Podbean, the Google Play, you name it. We are a podcast that is doing a couple things right now. We are reading A Song of Ice and Fire point of view chapter by point of view chapter. So we're going through a character's complete arc in all of the published books and the Wins Winners sample chapters over on our Patreon. Uh, and right now we are finishing up Jon Snow in A Dance with Dragons. And spoiler alert for those of you that have not finished the published books, I hear it's not a good ending for him. But <laughs> I hear he dies at the end. I digress. But... We are about to start a brand new point of view. I believe we are going to have Jeff on for one of those chapters. We'll uh, keep it silent for now, but stay tuned for that. And yeah, we're covering those straight through. We're also covering the His Dark Materials series, the main trilogy of books, and also the new TV show adaptation on BBC and HBO. Yes, HBO got a hold of another book series I love, so it's going great for me, you guys. Yeah, but you can check that out. We're putting out a couple of episodes a week right now. So it's going great. Me and my uh, my partner over there, Eliana, from Maester Monthly. You've heard her here doing some Daenerys stuff before. She's wonderful. Glass Table Girl on Reddit or Arithmetric on Twitter. But she is the backbone of the rest of the podcast, bringing good horse references and smart stuff. Yeah, she's she's great. I love her. She's a, she's a great friend. Uh, just to, uh, to anyone, but yeah, she's a very special friend you are as well thank you, yes, so thank you. it's an absolute delight so as always please rate review us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud podbean spotify anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts check out our patreon at patreon.com slash notacast a-s-o-i-a-f follow us on twitter at notacast a-s-o-i-a-f or shoot us an email at notacast a-s-o-i-a-f at gmail.com you can find me at porkwenton on twitter or porkwenton.com and you can find me at brennan peepish on twitter brennan peepish on reddit and my website is wars and politics and icefire.wordpress.com we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight, who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, what did the Five Fingers say to the face, Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, 
Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, and our newest High Lord, Sir Bodie McBoatface. So thank you to all our High Lords and ladies, and welcome to Sir Bodie McBoatface. Yeah, thank you guys and gals very much, and welcome Sir Bodie McBoatface. Love the name, and we look forward to many fun times on this podcast and on our Not a Site, which is something that will be available if we- which is something that is available for all of our high lords, high ladies, as well as our small council patrons. So next week, there will be no regular episode, but we will be releasing our latest Patreon-only episode, which is not Patreon-only episode, which is all about a tour of Winterfell with Sir Joe Buckley, which is the author of the fantastic book, which you all need to purchase, called The Great Castles of Westeros, an unofficial guide. And that is going to be out for the general public on Monday, December 30th. But in two weeks' time, we are coming back to... The one woman who's done only one thing wrong in her entire life, Catelyn Stark, in her second chapter as the Clash of Kings has... <sighs> we finally arrive at the camp of King fucking terrorist himself, Friendly Brathian, and we will be joined by yet another great guest. Drumroll, please. Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros is joining us. Yay! I know, I guess we've been waiting to have on for a long, long time. We're so thrilled to finally have Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros, the, the godfather of all the the uh, Westeros fandom podcasts and Catelyn 2 is just an extremely beautiful, dense, incredible chapter regardless of how you feel about Renly himself. It's just a wonderfully written chapter from Catelyn so that's going to be another great series of episodes. It's been so much fun to have all these guests Joe Buckley, Lady Gwyn and Chloe. This is it's just a wonderful way to participate in the community so I look forward to Catelyn 2. 